The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. On this episode of Washed Away, I'm going to tell you about what could possibly be the coldest cold case in Seattle's history. It involves dynamite, a widow, and 60 years of mystery. Actually, make that 61 years as of earlier this month. This is the truly bizarre story you probably haven't heard around the bombing of Pearl Kongsley. Yeah, Pearl Kongsley. I haven't, you know, looked at the case in quite a few years, and um, I got involved in it. Oh, geez, must know what five years ago I think it is. Case went south for a long time. Jagger Hoover was looking at it because she was the head of the FBI at the time, and um, I had a fun time reviewing that case and uh, looking at all these old black and white pictures because, you know, a lot of times we don't look at any cases that are that old because there's no evidence around, nothing like that. And um, it was a very bizarre case. That's Mike Szynski, a retired detective, talking about his time working on one of Seattle's coldest and strangest unsolved cases. You might have heard of Mike through his connection to the Chili Willie crimes from the 1990s. Chili Willie, a.k.a. Dwayne Lee Harris, was actually the first serial murderer to ever be charged in Seattle. If that stat doesn't sound right to you, remember, Ted Bundy doesn't really count. Despite being tied to the city and state forever in people's minds, he was never held accountable for his crimes here in Washington. And the Green River Killer wasn't caught until 2001. Mike also reviewed Kurt Cobain's death file in 2014, which got a lot of media attention. And for the record, he agreed with the original finding that Kurt had indeed died by suicide. Detective Szynski has clearly worked his share of unusual cases, but the one that this episode is about has been the hardest to solve. And he tried to get some traction on it before he retired in 2017, but he didn't have much luck. I was hoping I was going to get something on that case. I literally don't think I got one phone call. Nothing. Zero. Zip. Then again, it was 1959. All two that were involved in the case at the time were all long dead. So here's what happened. On September 2nd, 1959, a 62-year-old widow named Pearl Kongsley went to dinner with her neighbor, Alberta Bowman. The women lived on a quiet residential street near Lincoln Park in West Seattle, and they had declined ordering dessert at a nearby restaurant that evening because Alberta had a pie waiting for them at home. Of course, it was the 50s. Once they arrived back at Pearl's place, Pearl went inside and another friend joined her, Edith Friedman. At some point, Pearl either made a phone call or answered a phone call. That's unclear, as is who she was speaking to. And Alberta stopped at her own place, remember, she was a neighbor, to pick up their dessert. 
On her way back to Pearl's, she noticed a brown paper bag sitting on the front steps of Pearl's residence. According to some reports, it had a straw sticking out of the top, but otherwise it just looked like a normal paper lunch sack. Alberta kind of tried to pick it up, but it was really heavy, and she later described the object by saying it seemed as if it were alive or, or breathing. Another report claimed that something may have rolled inside when she touched it, or maybe she didn't touch it at all. It's hard to know. She called to Pearl from the front door and told her about this mystery package on her steps. Pearl hung up the phone, walked over to examine the bag, and leaned closer as Edith tried to tell Pearl not to touch it. But it was too late. Her and her two friends just came back from having dinner. One woman went next door. She lived next door and got the pie and brought the pie over and said, oh, yeah, there's a bag on the thing. I wouldn't touch it. It seems like it's breathing or something. And Pearl went there and um, looked at it, and she had one foot on the stoop and the other one on the stair, and then leaned down there and picked it up, and ba-boom. I mean, it, it buckled the roof of the house, blew off her, you know, they found, I think they found one of her thumbs across the street on the roof. Oh, my God. Blew her hand out, blew her leg, burned her, you know, singed her, you know. It was quite an explosion. Sorry about the birds chirping in the background. I know it's weird considering the subject matter, but I interviewed Mike earlier this summer on a particularly nice morning and he was outside. So yeah, birds. In all likelihood, Pearl died instantly from her injuries. Her friends, Edith and Alberta, they were thrown against the wall of the house by the force of the blast. But luckily, neither of them were standing close enough to be seriously injured. Windows of nearby homes were completely broken. Where Pearl once stood, there was now a crater in her front yard. Reportedly, a car could be seen speeding away, possibly with three men inside. It was a white 1949 Chevrolet, but police were never able to track it down. It seems like such a crucial clue, so I asked Mike about that detail. I think what it was probably just someone got freaked out some kids, you know, that heard the explosion and, uh, what the hell was that? And they just kind of boogied. Uh, but looking for all, there was, they couldn't find anything out of it at all. And they interviewed over uh, 100 people, I believe, um, from what the case said. And this was a tough one because seemingly no motive, right? No motive. It's a nice West Seattle neighborhood, and uh, she had no known enemies. I mean, she was 62 years old. Pearl had a roommate of sorts. He was her tenant, but I'm not sure if he lived in a separate part of the house or... I don't know what the deal was. His name was William J. Myers, and he supposedly had a dog that barked a lot. This came up as possible motive for the blast. Maybe neighbors were upset, or maybe he was the intended target. But William was in the VA hospital when the bomb went off. Here's some more background on Pearl's life. Pearl's husband was a Puget Sound master mariner, or a captain. His name was Guy Kongsley, and he died in 1949. That's 10 years before a bomb would kill Pearl. As far as anyone could tell, Guy didn't leave behind any enemies or debts or any reason for someone to want to hurt his wife in his absence. And in 1959, Pearl had started moving on with her life. She sold their old house, she bought a car, and she was planning a big move. Pearl didn't have any children, but she did have some relatives. In fact, Pearl's brother-in-law, Elmer Kongsley, and his wife, who also lived in Washington state, had found sticks of dynamite scattered on their lawn just three weeks before Pearl would find a bag on hers. Those two events have to be connected, right? 
Yeah, I, I remember a little bit about the. I think it came out that it was nothing. I mean, literally nothing. What it wasn't. I don't think it was dynamite. And um, yeah, but it was. They they, they they ran that thing down to the ground. I thought this was you know it was the brother involved was a friend or something like that. And, um, but yes, nothing came came with that at all. There's all little things that you know, of course, you know, turns and you say, oh, could it be this guy? Could it be that guy? You know. I used to think it was a prank turn bad myself. Because um, you talk about a little overkill for some, you know, 62-year-old woman, you know, and to lay that out there in daylight. I mean, they were proficient enough to make a bomb like that, which is, you know, bombs scare me to death anyway, you know. Yeah. Um, but to, to take it and carry it and then to go up the stairs and someone come and, you know, go put it down and, um, on the stair like that. So they're proficient enough to make the bomb not proficient enough to put it to where it's going to get its best use, that is to kill somebody. So I'm not sure if Mike meant that the dynamite found on the brother-in-law's lawn didn't actually happen or exist, like it was just a rumor, or that it did happen, but police couldn't tie it to Pearl's bombing and so therefore nothing came of it. And to clarify what he was saying about the placement of the bomb, it was on her front steps, but not at the bottom or the top, where it would have caused the most damage. You'd think an experienced bomb maker would know where to place a bomb if destruction or murder was indeed their goal. And since we're talking about dynamite, here's a little extra info for you. Swedish chemist Alfred Noble invented dynamite in 1867 as a way of stabilizing nitroglycerin. That way, it was a little bit easier, safer, and more practical to blow up rocks so that you could tunnel into mines. Dynamite has nitrogen and oxygen, which leads to explosive but delayed results. The mixture is not stable in damp environments. Water actually causes nitroglycerin in dynamite to start leaking away and explode unexpectedly. And of course, Seattle tends to be a pretty damp environment. It was a substantial amount of explosive that was in there. And... Uh... It was it was just kind of weird, and there was you know the, the, seeing the pictures of it, you know, and uh, and they gave a lot of information away, like well, we wouldn't right, today, we wouldn't have given all the information away, you know, seeing exactly what kind of dynamite it was, and so Mike's saying the cops didn't keep enough details to themselves in this case, like the papers pretty much printed everything, and if someone were to come forward and falsely confess that would make it really difficult because they wouldn't have anything that only the authorities knew to kind of cross-check whether or not someone was telling the truth. And this was in the 1950s before DNA and forensics when that kind of stuff was incredibly important. I was curious to learn about other bombings in Seattle's history. I found that six movie theaters were bombed in 1928 but couldn't find a reason or explanation. The University of Washington Administration Building was bombed in 1969. That was actually a big one. It caused an estimated $300,000 in damages. But there were no casualties and no claims of responsibility, which seems weird. D.B. Cooper claimed to have a bomb in his suitcase when he boarded a plane in Portland, Oregon, headed for Seattle in 1971. And that story could definitely be saved for another time. That's really all I could find when it came to bombings in Seattle's history. And this tragic Pearl Kongsley mystery is considered, quote, the first time in Seattle's history that a private citizen 
had apparently been assassinated with a booby trap, end quote. But was she actually assassinated? That's a term usually reserved for presidents and other political figures. The actual definition of to assassinate is to murder an important person in a surprise attack for religious or political reasons. Pearl was, by all accounts, just a normal citizen. She was a widow, a neighbor, and a friend. So do you think, just in your professional opinion and going over this case, do you think Pearl was the intended target or do you think it was like a, a random prank or I don't know? I I think, I don't think, well, nothing, nothing point out like that Pearl had some criminal activity that she was doing or covering something up and the husband was dead already for a while. And I don't think it was something that was intentional. I don't know if it was a prank or somebody was wanting to blow something up. I don't think... I don't believe she really was the target, to be honest with you, because it could have been, you know, if the other one would have picked up the bomb, you know, when she's walking back with her pie. And as soon as she lifted it up, uh, that activated it. Yeah, that's true. I get the neighbor or the, or the friend, you know, the, if they would have picked it up, it would have been them instead. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's unclear if any investigation was done into the backgrounds of Pearl's friends. I mean, they were her friends, they were her neighbors, and they were around her age at the time. So probably unlikely that they were involved in any way, but never hurts to look. And of course, since those women have long passed, not sure what exactly we'd be able to find out now. I'm thinking it was more myself personally. I think it was more mm, kind of like a prank or something. Well, we all knew some, you know, we growing up, we all knew some weird kids, you know, that do some weird stuff, you know. Uh, but dynamite was easier to get back in the days than it is now. You know, he didn't need an identification for that kind of stuff. So That's kind of true. Now that we have access to the Internet, you can get your hands on just about anything. But your purchases can be tracked as well. I mean, to your IP address, to your credit card number, or to the address it was delivered to. There's ways to track that stuff. So it'd be really hard to hide the fact that you bought Dynamite in 2020 if you could. In 1959, I have no idea. Obviously, there are so many questions that linger in this case. Who left a bomb on Pearl Steps and why? Was it a prank gone horribly wrong, like Mike, the uh, former detective, thinks? What motive could anyone have to kill a 62-year-old woman in such a brutal way? Could it possibly have had something to do with the dynamite found on her brother-in-law's lawn that may or may not have happened? Was there something about Pearl that no one knew? Did she have a secret? Who was she talking to on the phone? Or perhaps did this all have something to do with her selling her house? Was a, a realtor upset with her or a neighbor? Or, or was her tenant the intended target? And if Alberta originally tried to pick up the bomb, why didn't it go off on her? Though it's possible that detail had been reported incorrectly. Maybe she never even touched it. We just don't know. And sadly, after 61 years... It's really not likely that answers will come anytime soon. But on the off chance that you have any tips or any information that could help solve this cold case, please contact the King County Sheriff's Office Major Crimes Unit at 206-263-2090. That's 206-263-2090. You can also email them mcutips at kingcounty.gov. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production. 
You can find my show notes, meaning images, transcripts, sources, that kind of stuff at washedawaypodcast.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at washedawaypod. And if you'd like to help this podcast reach new ears, please leave a rating or review on Apple. I'm Ashley Smith, and I'll have another episode for you very soon. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.